Would you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4? We are continuing this morning our study from the book of Daniel, a sermon series that will take us through the end of the book, um, from Daniel 1 to all the way to Daniel chapter 12, a, a theme uh, or a, a series whose major theme is the supremacy of God. The book of Daniel, today we continue chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 773. Let's prepare our hearts for the reading of God's Word. This is going to be a longer chapter, and if you've been around Park Hills for a while, you know we are not afraid of reading long chapters. We would rather read God's Word than you listen to me speak. I'm serious. Amen? God can speak to us through the mere simplicity of reading God's Word. So that's what we're going to do. Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream. But they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were bountiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was, flood of, was food for all. Under it the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches, from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a, in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, 
remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in Babel in in my kingdom can interpret for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. A tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches a sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the king. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips 
when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times you will pass by you, for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand and say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Amen. This was the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer so that we may ask God to give us his spirit to understand it? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your revelation of your kingdom to us. We thank you that you reign. We thank you that your dominion is everlasting. This morning, O oh Lord, we have one small request. Would you drive home this point for us again in fresh ways? Most of us in this place know this truth. But Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit to cause affections in our hearts that we might embrace this truth and that we might praise this truth and that we might respond to this truth. It is for your Son's name, glory, that we pray. Amen. Friends, Daniel chapter 4. This is the last story about King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we will actually hear about this story again next week in chapter 5, when Daniel will rebuke Nebuchadnezzar's successor for failing to learn the lesson in this chapter. Friends, listen to the story in this chapter today, because you don't want to find yourself replaying the script of chapter 5. Listen to the lesson of this chapter. Notice how this chapter starts. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, it's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. 
Friends, this language sounds like a personal testimony. And that's what it is. A testimony from King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look and see what he emphasizes. What's the point of this testimony? Well, this testimony starts by praising God. Look at verse 3. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Do you hear that praise? And when we read the chapter, did you hear the echo of this praise? This praise will be repeated again at the end of the chapter in verse 34. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. So the point about this testimony is, about, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God functions as bookends to this chapter. The kingdom of God or the praise to the kingdom of God functions as bookends to this testimony. And then as we will see, this praise about the kingdom of God is echoed two more times in the story. In other words, the introductory praise of verse 3 is the conclusion. It's also the center. And it's the, it's the introduction, the center, and the conclusion of this chapter. It's a grand point. Why Nebuchadnezzar tells us this testimony? To tell us about the sovereign rule of God. But this lesson about the sovereign kingdom of God, about His sovereign rule, is not just a theological lecture. This lesson is played out in a very practical way. This lesson was played out in a very personal way. This lesson was played out in a very painful way. The God who humbles the king. It's a very painful story of how God awoke the king to how serious and real is the kingdom of God. God humbles the king to bring home this lesson about the reign of God over the affairs of men. Most of this chapter is the recounting of how God humbled this king. But the main purpose of the chapter is not a lesson in humility or suffering. The main purpose of this chapter, the main purpose behind the humbling of the king is God's gracious purpose. And that's what we want to look at. God's gracious purpose behind humbling the king. He's helping the king realize who is truly king, who's truly in control, who's truly sovereign, whose kingdom is enduring, more so, whose kingdom really matters. And whose kingdom do you and should you try to be sure to be a part of? The humbling this chapter relates is not a general trait of humility. Friends, you can find general traits of humility in people who are irreligious. There are people who have nothing to do with God and have a way about themselves that's very humble. It's not hard to find them. But the kind of humility and the humbling experience we see in this chapter is closely related to the revelation of the kingdom of God, to the revelation of the reign of God. It's a kind of humility that finds its source in realizing God's sovereign control. So let's look at each of these two themes of how they interplay. God's painful decree of humbling the king. God's painful decree of humbling the king. 
But then let's look at God's gracious purpose of revealing His reign. God's gracious purpose of revealing His reign. Let's look at these two, two themes as they interplay in this chapter. God's faithful decree humbles a king. The recounting of the story of God humbling the king is fairly straightforward. It really has two parts. First, God gives a dream to warn the king about what's going on and what's going to happen to him. And second, God executes it. God does it. He does what he says he will do. The dream is aimed at warning the king, warning the king um, about what's coming to him, and God gives him a picture of a great tree touching the sky, visible to the ends of the earth. This was the reputation and influence of the king of Babylon. He was able to achieve that which the people of Babel, his predecessors, have aimed and hoped to achieve, and God has frustrated his plan, their plans. In a similar way, as in Genesis 11, a messenger from God, a messenger from heaven, comes down and frustrates the plans of the king of Babylon. God sends this messenger to cut down a tree as an image of what will happen to the king. God will drive away the king from his throne. Actually, look at verse 16. How God will do this, what God will do. Verse 16 says, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with animals among the plants of the earth. Friends, so far, we could say this king is going to become homeless. Deposed of power, deposed of riches, deposed even of shelter and food. But that's not the end of God's judgment. Look at verse 17. Let, him, let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal. In other words, God will take away his reason so that whatever he will do, he will do willingly. Because his mind became corrupted. Let this be very clear. God is not forcing this upon the king. Once God is giving him this kind of mind, the king does this willingly, freely. As Daniel interprets the dream, we find out that this humbling is for a season. Verse 26, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Do you hear what's at stake? Do you hear what God wants to teach us, king? That heaven rules. That even if his empire has reached a climax of influence, the king has failed to acknowledge the presence of another dominion, the dominion of heaven. And Daniel's encouragement to the king to turn away from his sin and wickedness was a practical implication of what he means to acknowledge that heaven rules over our lives. We turn away from our sinful, rebellious ways. That's why Daniel, at the end of interpreting the dream for the king, says, O king, accept my advice. Turn away from your sins. Accept the truth that heaven rules. Now look at, look at the way Daniel gives this to the king. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness, and renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Now, friends, let's be very clear. Daniel is not suggesting here a salvation by works. If you remember in chapter 2 and 3, King Nebuchadnezzar has already acknowledged the greatness of God. 
Remember the stories of chapter 2? Remember the story of chapter 3? The fire and how this king has already acknowledged the greatness of God? Has anything changed in his life? Nothing. That's why Daniel comes back now and says, Renounce your ways. It's not enough simply to acknowledge God as king, as the most high, by some sort of giving a, an intellectual assent to his greatness without that actually changing, transforming your life. This emphasis of having a, a true kind of faith in God that really changes us, that changes our patterns of life, was an emphasis that the prophets in the Old Testament constantly brought back to the people of Israel when they said, do what is right. Stop oppressing the poor. Do righteousness. This was not a works righteousness. This was simply a message to say, live according to the truth that God's ways are, are true. Live out the truth that heaven rules. It's this emphasis of having a true faith in God that truly transforms us. That's the point of the book of James as well. It's not that faith, it's not that works produces faith. It's a true faith produces works. And a faith that does not produce works is dead. That's why we don't just take someone's word for being a Christian, dear friends. We actually look for fruits of that faith. And we're not ashamed to expect it. And we're not ashamed to talk about it. In a similar way, Daniel is telling this king, your previous acknowledgments of faith in God have produced no fruit. Turn away from your sin and let the fruit of righteousness be seen. But what does the king do? Does he listen? He doesn't. Look at verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my power and for the glory of my majesty? The king fails to acknowledge that heaven rules. When he looks at, the, at his kingdom, at what he accomplished, at what does he conclude? Verse 30, is not this the great Babylon I have built by my power and for the glory of my majesty? Friends, the king continues to be consumed with himself, with what he was able to accomplish for his own satisfaction and glory. Friends, just a hint about sin from this picture. Sin will always crouch at your door with enticing you with something that would satisfy you. Sin always entices us with something that would be satisfying to you, not to somebody else. He's not going to say, look, do this, and the world will be such a better place. Do this, and God will be so happy with you. No, he'll come and say, do this, and you'll feel so good about it. It'll be so good to you. The heart of sin is ultimately a turn away from God towards you. Turn away from God towards me. And this turn happens not just to us individually, but it happens corporately when churches turn their ultimate attention away from God 
and towards themselves, to how big they have become, to what they were able to accomplish, to their strategies that guarantee success. Verse 31 tells us that the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. God's verdict was going to be executed. And how is it described? In one simple phrase, your royal authority has been taken away from you. And then verse 33 tells us, immediately what had been said about King Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Friends, God's reign is real. He has the power to come through on all his plans. And he does so, especially when the warning signs have been ignored, dismissed, and rejected. God's painful decree to humble the king. That's the first stream of emphasis going through this chapter. But why did God humble the king in this way? Let's look at the second theme in this chapter, God's gracious purpose. God's gracious purpose to reveal his reign. Throughout the story of God humbling the king, we're giving clear explanations why this is happening. Um, verse 17, would you look to verse 17 for a second? It's probably one of, the, one of the most clear ones, but it's going to be repeated again. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that. So that. Why? Here's why. So that. The living, not just the king, the living, and that includes you and me today, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kings of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. That's the point of the dream. That's the point of why God decrees a painful humbling for the king to tell those living on earth that heaven rules, that the most sovereign, that the most high is sovereign in control even over the kingdoms of the earth. And one particular example of his control over the kingdoms of the earth is the fact that he's able to give these kingdoms to whomever he wishes. In this case, God gave the kingdoms of this earth to Babylon. Do you remember the, the prophecy from Jeremiah that our brother Andy read earlier in the service? And do you remember how the book of Daniel starts with the words, and God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar? And it's not simply that God gave Israel and Judah, the people of Judah, to Nebuchadnezzar. God says, I'm going to give Israel's neighbors as well to Babylon. I'm giving all the nations of the earth to Babylon. I am giving all the animals of the earth to come under the authority of the king of Babylon. God has the authority to give the kingdoms of the earth to whomever he chooses. And up until now in the story, he chose to do it to Babylon. But there was somebody else who needed to know this lesson. Not just Israel. Not just the nations around Israel. This time, God has to teach this lesson to the very king of Babylon. 
the one who up until now was the recipient of what God has given to him. And the exiles were proof that God has given them these kingdoms to him. But he didn't see it that way, did he? What he saw was his kingdom, his might, his power, the tree that reached the sky, the tree that had a reputation for the whole face of the earth, just like the Tower of Babel. And God now has to give the same lesson to this king. The very God who gave him authority over men now takes it away from him. Why does God humble the king? The question is not simply, why does God humble us? But why does God humble the king? And not just any king, but the king that conquered all these nations. The king of the greatest empire at the time to teach even him that he's not in charge. That even when it seems so, even the one place on earth where somebody might have the greatest advantage point of seeing control, human control, even in that spot, God reveals himself. Even in that place, in that seat, God says, you are not in control. There is a higher throne, and even the king of Babylon must change his orientation in life to this higher throne. And if God does this to the king of Babylon, he wants to do it with every one of us who are among the living. This is the purpose why God humbles a pagan king, wants to open the eyes of the king to show, to see who is truly in control. It was God who was working through this king and conquering the nations. It was God who gave him authority to, to be king over the animal kingdom. But the king was blind to see this true reality. He became infatuated with his own sense of importance and influence. And such infatuation with our own self is always self-destructive. And friends, in the end, such infatuation with our own sense of self-importance triggers the judgment of God. That's why God warns a king about this danger. But even though this was a very painful lesson, it was a gracious lesson. It was a gracious lesson. Now, some of you who are actually listening to my sermon this morning and listening to the words that I just said, it didn't just go over you. It's a gracious lesson. Samuel, hold on. Chapter 4. God making a king, the king of Babylon, to be homeless. That? Gracious? Yes. Here's why. Here's the most obvious reason why this painful lesson is gracious. Compare the ending of chapter 4 with the ending of chapter 5. Compare how this lesson ends and how the lesson ends in chapter 5. Those of you who don't know chapter 5, go home and read it. Get ready for next week. You'll get a sense by chapter 4. It's God's gracious purpose. In chapter 4, there's a hope and opportunity to turn around. In chapter 4, there's a hope 
and the opportunity to turn around. This pain is designed to lead to repentance. And that's gracious. The second reason why it's gracious is because, friends, whenever God uses painful experiences to bring us back to Himself, they are truly gracious experiences, even though they're painful. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Do you know how we know in this chapter that this purpose was gracious for the king and it worked out in a gracious way for the king? Let me point you to a few pointers in this chapter to show us that this lesson is indeed gracious. First of all, the, lesson, the, the king learns a lesson. The concluding praises give us a few hints that he really gets it. Look at his concluding praise in verse 34. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. The king learns the lesson that Daniel revealed in chapter 2, that the kingdom God sets up is and will be everlasting. Then another lesson the king learns about God's supreme freedom. He says in verse 35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. The point here is not that God doesn't find value in us, but that in comparison with his control, our sense of control makes us look like nothing. As if we did not exist. The point of God's freedom implies the rest of verse 35. And none can stay his hand and say to him, What have you done? Now why is this question part of the, of the king's lesson of what he has learned? Why is this question, no one can tell him, what have you done, important for this lesson? Because it's very easy when God humbles us to say, Lord, what are you doing? Right? When God humbles us, when God takes us through pain, through difficult circumstances, it's easy for us to say, Lord, what in the world are you doing? As if somehow God is accountable to us. How foolish. King Nebuchadnezzar says, nobody can say to him even that question. That's how amazingly supreme our God is. And to prove that the king really got this lesson, look at the final words in verse 37. Now I... Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Really? King, can you say this even after such a humbling experience? He doesn't say most of God's ways are right. Most of God's ways are just. He says everything and he says this right after all these things have come to pass. Do you see what's going on here? The king has come full circle to appreciate God's ways, even the most difficult ones. 
That's why we know that this king has learned the the gracious purpose of God because he looks at his lessons and he finds in them no more regret, no more pain, no more bitterness. God's ways are right. God's ways are just. There's no more resentment about the ways of God. Friends, when we come to see God's greatest purpose, we cannot but conclude that God's ways are always right and just, even when they're painful. Why? Because he brings us back to himself. In these lines, you hear the voice of a man who recounts his story of how God humbled him, and you hear no resentment. Why? Because he became convinced that there is a higher throne, even above his throne, and learning to, re- to respond to God's reign is a gracious purpose of God. Learning to respond appropriately in life's circumstances to God's reign is a gracious purpose of God. But there's somebody else in this story that, that we may easily skip who needed to learn this lesson in a fresh way. It's not just a king of Babylon. There's somebody else who needed this story to be convinced and reminded of God's control over the kingdoms of the earth and of God's gracious purpose. It was all the nations and the peoples that were under the king of Babylon. That's why he writes this as a testimony and spreads them out to the entire kingdom. All the peoples, all the nations of his kingdom get this testimony report. so that all will know that their destiny under the king of Babylon was God's decree over them. But of all the nations of this empire, of all the peoples this king has subjugated and exiled, there was one nation who perhaps needed to hear these words the most. It was Israel. Many years have gone. The prophets in Jeremiah's time have all prophesied. The kingdom, the exile will be short. Everything will come back soon. That's what everybody was saying, a message of hope. False hope. And the years have passed by, and nothing has come about. The exile was going on, and it seemed indeed that God was no longer in charge, that God was no longer caring for his people, that God was no longer in control. If you want to see this, this, how true this is, go home and read Jeremiah's letter in chapter 21, 29 to the exiles of Babylon. And Jeremiah says, don't listen to the prophets who tell you this will be short. It will be long. Stay there. Plan to stay there. Be concerned about the welfare of the city because you'll be there for a while. And it was easy for Israel to feel crushed and hopeless under the long years of exile. And most importantly, it was easy for those under exile to lose hope in God, the God of their fathers. It was easy for their faith to be crushed under the heavy burden of a long exile. Imagine what must have felt like 
if you are one of those exiled people scattered throughout Babylon, and one day a decree comes from the king, and you're fearful of another decree that would command worshiping his gods. But instead, what you get is chapter 4. Can you imagine? And you can't help, you can't help but conclude that only the God of heaven can humble even the king of Babylon in this way. Only the God of heaven can turn the king's heart to acknowledge that the God of Israel, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is truly in control over the affairs of man. What a bolstering of faith for the Hebrew people scattered throughout Babylon. Friend, do you see God's gracious purpose behind this story? To bolster the faith of those crushed under the weight of the exile? God has spoken to His people through the prophets, and they disregarded His word. God has taken them into exile, and now God speaks to His people through the decree of a pagan king, and now the king of Babylon is the one who declares that God is sovereign over the nations of the world. How gracious is this God? How gracious. But there's one last proof of God's gracious purpose behind this humble experience. He humbles not only the king and is gracious to the king, he's not only gracious to the people of Israel by bolstering their faith, that God indeed is able to do this. But there's something else in, this, in the God's gracious purpose. Whenever the angel of God announced that God's purpose behind this humbling experience um, was to point the king to God's sovereign power, here's something what the king was supposed to get. Not only that there's a higher throne to whom the king must submit, but that God is able to set over the kingdoms of men anyone he wishes and set over them the lowliest of men. Verse 17, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Friends, this promise prepares the way for us to believe that God will give the kingdoms of the world to the one who has become the lowliest of men, the one hung on a tree, a tree of human wickedness and pride, a tree resembling human control and power. Isaiah spoke of him despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Yet to him who by his cross became the lowliest of men, to him God has chosen to give the kingdom. Thus, when you go to Revelations chapter 11, verse 15, it is no wonder that we hear loud voices in heaven singing, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Friends, make no mistake, the Most High God will give the kingdom to His Son, Jesus Christ. That's chapter 4 of Daniel prepares us for. That's why the story of God humbling King Nebuchadnezzar has a gracious 
purpose because it prepares the way for us to hear and believe that in the end, God will turn over all the kingdoms of the world to anyone he wishes. And the one he has chosen to rule over the world is King Jesus. And the gospel, friends, is a message not only of God's love, it's also the message about God's victory over his enemies so that God will give the kingdoms of the world to be under the reign of Christ. And anyone who continues to reject him, anyone who continues to rebel against him, is doomed to eternal judgment of the, this victorious God. But anyone who responds to Christ will belong to his victorious kingdom. And friends, our response to Christ involves a turning away from our rebellion, a turning away from our sin, and turning, away, uh, turning to Christ and believing that on that tree, Christ has bore the punishment of our rebellion so that he might give us entrance into his kingdom. Friends, it is only by responding in this way to Christ, by repentance from sin and turning to him in faith, that we actually are given a new citizenship into his kingdom. It is by doing so that we embrace Christ and are united to him by his Holy Spirit. Friend, if God in the end will give the kingdoms of men to King Jesus, your only hope is to turn to Jesus. Your only hope is to embrace this King, even now. Even now. Friend, don't wait for the events of Daniel 5. Don't wait for the events of Daniel 5. If you would like to know more about how you can respond to Christ, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But don't wait. For all those of us who have made a public profession of our repentance and faith in Christ, friends, let us be encouraged to persevere. Let us be encouraged to persevere in our worship of God, even if we're still waiting for the exile to be over. Let us not lose faith that our God is sovereign over the affairs of men. Let us sing with Nebuchadnezzar that everything God does is right and all his ways are just, even when he humbles us to awaken us, to awaken us from the slumber and numbness of losing sight of the kingdom of God. Let's sing with King Nebuchadnezzar his doxology that everything he does is right and all his ways are just, even when he humbles us because his dominion is an eternal dominion. And heaven rules. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you have provided us a king, King Jesus. And in your word, you have given us a promise that a day will come when every knee and tongue will bow before him and worship him. Lord, we, your people, look expectantly to that day. We look awaitingly for that hour. But Lord, we also look with sadness to those who still ignore, who still refuse, who still dismiss your message. Lord, I pray that you would grant your grace to us, 
to those who hear this message, to those who hear the gospel, that they may come to you, that they may respond to you, so they might become citizens of your eternal reign. Oh, Lord, we pray that your church will be an embassy of your reign here on earth. We pray that Park Hills Baptist Church will be an outpost of what it means that God reigns among his people. Renew in us a commitment to your kingdom. Renew in us a commitment to our gathering as the bound people, bound to their Lord and King. We pray that your kingdom may shine forth through us in this place for your glory, not ours. Amen.